auto dealers. Are you missing the most engaged buyers because you don't know where to find them? At eBay Motors, you'll find buyers so motivated, they purchase a car or truck once every three minutes. Just call 866-210-5362 and mention the code AUTONEWS to get 50% off your first two months. Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, July 21st, 2022. I'm your host, Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, Ford could cut up to 8,000 jobs with an eye on EV funding. AutoNation's revenue falls behind Lithia in Q2. And Rivian finally delivers for Amazon. Plus a conversation about the end of Jeep production in China with ZozoGo CEO Michael Dunn. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Up to 8,000 Ford employees could soon be out of a job. People familiar with the plan told Bloomberg that the automaker is trying to boost profits in order to fund its ambitious EV efforts. Those sources say the job cuts will come from the newly created Ford Blue unit, as well as other salaried positions throughout the company. Ford Blue is responsible for producing internal combustion engine vehicles. The move would mark a significant step in CEO Jim Farley's plan to cut $3 billion in costs by 2026. The plan has not yet been finalized and details could still change. AutoNation said today that it has made a deal to acquire auto finance company CIG Financial for $85 million. That deal follows CEO Mike Manley's vision to create a captive finance company for AutoNation. He said back in February that the company was aggressively looking into restarting a finance company in part to help AutoNation as it expands its standalone used vehicle business. The deal was announced along with second quarter financial results that held pretty steady from a year earlier. Revenue slipped 1.6% to $6.9 billion, and net income slid 2.2% to $376 million. But AutoNation, long the largest auto retail group in the U.S., appears to have been surpassed by Lithia Motors. The Oregon-based group booked $7.2 billion in revenue last quarter. For the first half of the year, Lithia sold 133,000 vehicles to AutoNation's 114,000. In other earnings news... Tesla did better than expected after a string of price increases on its best-selling electric vehicles. CEO Elon Musk said, quote, they're frankly at embarrassing levels. He blamed crazy inflation and said he hopes, but would not promise, to reduce prices when inflation eases. The price hikes more than offset production challenges in China. Tesla's net income rose to almost $2.3 billion for the quarter, even as total revenue fell almost 10% from the first quarter to the second, ending Tesla's streak of posting ever higher revenue records. The Texas-based company struggled to maintain production amid Shanghai's extended COVID lockdown and production challenges at new plants. And Amazon has been waiting for its first batch of electric delivery vans from Rivian for a while. Now the EV maker is finally delivering. Amazon was an early investor in the electric startup, It's been waiting out production delays since the two companies announced their partnership in 2019. Now the futuristic vehicles can go to work in major U.S. cities. The move is another step forward for Rivian, which has struggled to ramp up production of its electric R1T pickup. It only recently announced the formal launch of its R1S SUV, 
Amazon's order for 100,000 vans by 2030 with options for additional orders is considered a significant driver of Rivian's growth in coming years, in addition to the R1T and R1S. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, these Ford firings, we've kind of seen a trend here with automakers in the last couple of weeks of having to let go of employees to restructure to take on EV production. Is this something that we're going to see more of going into Q3? You know, we'll see. You know, the, we've had some job cuts recently at Rivian and Tesla, and it's a little bit different scenario, perhaps, for those fast-growing EV companies. Uh, you know, Rivian might be shifting priorities around and unloading units or teams that it doesn't need so much right now. With Ford, you're seeing more. Think back to when we had Kia's Steve Center on the show, and he talked about the incumbent automakers being in both the EV world and the ICE world. In the old ICE world, if you need to make more money, you stop spending money on engineering and design and product development, and you can just kind of rake it in. You don't have a really sustainable business, but as you're making the pivot to EVs, it might be something we see a lot more companies trying to do in their ICE divisions. Well, coming up, Stellantis has slammed the brakes on Jeep production in China. We'll hear what one auto industry advisor has to say about that next on Daily Drive. The most motivated car buyers aren't knocking on your door anymore. They're online, but you don't have to look far. You can find them at eBay Motors. Our platform features over 7 million engaged users. Our buyers are so engaged, they enter over 3 billion search impressions per month and buy a car or truck every three minutes. Today's car buyer has high expectations when they browse online. eBay Motors helps you meet those expectations. Use machine learning with our AI-driven vehicle pages, and you'll automatically optimize your buyer's experience. It's as easy as listing your inventory and watching as the most engaged buyers find you. If you've ever uploaded your automotive inventory to a website, you have more than enough skills to get your cars listed on eBay Motors. It will feel like you're setting up an entirely new car dealership within minutes. Once you list your available inventory, you'll have additional support from the platform, including a single destination page for your entire brand. Want to generate more sales automatically? eBay Motors lets you choose between auction, classified, and fixed price listing options so the site does the heavy lifting. It even integrates with your existing dealer or vehicle management system. All you have to do is list your inventory, sit back, relax, watch a movie, and then check back in to see the sales you've made. How do you start? It's as simple as creating an account. Call 866-210-5362 and mention the code AUTONEWS to get 50% off your first two months. Find out why selling cars has never been this easy. That number again, 866-210-5362. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Earlier this week, Stellantis said it was done with its joint venture with Chinese automaker GAC, which has been producing Jeeps. A spokesperson for Stellantis said the venture was a money loser and that the car maker could still operate in China, importing vehicles to its dealer network. This all comes just months after a public kerfuffle in which Stellantis said it was raising its stake in the GAC joint venture from 50 to 75 percent. The Chinese company wasn't happy about that announcement and reprimanded Stellantis. Now, the partnership is no more. I spoke about all of it with Michael Dunn. He advises automakers, suppliers, and investors on how to, quote, win globally as CEO of the company Zozo Go. A former executive with J.D. Power and General Motors, he's also the host of the Driving with Dunn podcast. I reached him in San Diego. Michael Dunn, welcome to Daily Drive. 
Hey, so nice to be with you this morning, Jamie. How's everything? Uh, it's better. It's all good now that I'm talking to you. All right. So I need you to help me untangle this Jeep saga in China. And, you know, it, of course, uh, Carlos Tavares and Stellantis just ended their or announced that they're ending uh, their joint venture with GAC. But let's go back uh, to the beginning. Really, I mean, Jeep was the first U.S. brand into China, right, in 1984 when it was still owned by American Motors? That's right. The very first joint venture, high hopes going in, and it very quickly turned into what we might think of as a Greek tragic comedy. I mean, you had <laughs> high drama, you had mistrust, bad luck, misdealings, the works, everything was going on. But most important, the joint venture started out by building Jeeps, which from an American mindset would be, oh, terrific. That's our that's our iconic brand. And it's going into China. They must need Jeeps. And yet for the Chinese at the time, this is the 1980s, Jeeps were designed for farmers and construction workers. There are trucks. Nobody in the city who had an education and were the elites wanted a Jeep or anything like a Jeep. They just wanted sedans. So immediately out of the gates, Beijing Jeep, this joint venture, confronts this market that doesn't want its product. Completely out of step. Completely. <laughs> <laughs> they were not only the first brand in, they yes. were then basically the first brand out. So, you know, this isn't working. It's not really our product. It's not efficient. It's not efficiently built. Uh, we're not making money. And they left. That's right. Well, you know, the Germans had a role to play there. 20 years later, 1983, 2003, we have that. Remember Daimler Chrysler, Mercedes mm -hmm. wants into China, needs a license to manufacture in China. It goes, oh, by the way, we'll just borrow the one from Jeep. And I understand that means closing down Beijing Jeep, but it's never really got traction. So why not? So Mercedes more or less stole the license away from Jeep, <laughs> closed down Beijing Jeep. It's history. 20 years later, closed the business. 2003, Jamie, at just what time? At just a time when SUVs suddenly become very popular in China. Well, and the market really took off, right? We're talking about it was like a one, two, three million vehicle market and then hitting into its exponential growth that turned it into a 20, 30 million vehicle market. Right? Just phenomenal. The golden yeah. years of China, one million, just as you say, <laughs> to like 15, 20 million. And go, oh, by the way, SUVs become the largest single segment, 10 million units a year. What? How did that happen? Just briefly, a lot of Chinese students who came to the United States said, oh, SUVs are actually pretty cool. So they came back and encouraged everybody to buy SUVs and they were off and running. And the folks at Jeep were looking from the sidelines saying, this is a nightmare. We were in the market for 20 years, did nothing. Now the market's taking off and we're not producing in China anymore. And at the time, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, just a few years later, how, you know, people in China were paying like super premium prices for Grand Cherokees. Right. Because you'd have the tariff that would come in, you'd have an importer's fee, there'd be, you know, all the profits added on. And suddenly people were paying two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a, a Grand Cherokee that you'd buy here for, you know, a fifth of that. Right. That's exactly right. So the Jeep name, the Jeep brand still carried tremendous cachet with the Chinese consumer. And they were willing to pay these basically outrageous prices for imported Grand Cherokees. And that really gave incentive to the people at, well, what's the name at that time? Was it Chrysler again or FCA? How do we get back into the game here in China? Mm -hmm. 
so how they did it, right? Sergio and because Sergio Marchione, he knows the his two you know crown jewels are Jeep and Ram. And Jeep, you know, is is the preeminent American SUV brand. It's iconic, created the segment, arguably, right? And although you know, there's others, others with a good claim to it as well. But Jeep was is huge, and he envisions you know 20% market share worldwide in all crossovers and SUVs. China, of course, is pivotal to that. He puts his key guy, Mike Manley, he's the Jeep guy, and he toiled for so long to get a new deal and get Jeep back into China. That's right. 10 years between the time Mercedes shut down Beijing Jeep until Jeep got restarted, new venture partner called Guangzhou Automotive, who had partnerships already with Toyota and Honda, successful ones. So good choice of partner coming back into the market at a time when the demand is still very strong for SUVs. And yet the problem was that all the segments had been filled up from top to bottom. <laughs> the bottom end were the Chinese. The middle of segments were the Chevys and the Volkswagens. And then at the high end, you had the Mercedes, BMW, Audi, Lexus gang. So Jeep's looking and saying, where do we get in? How do we get in? That was a dilemma. Yeah, and they didn't have a Grand Wagoneer or anything of the sort uh they could offer grand cherokees but but they took sort of a different strategy didn't they they did they did they said we probably cannot come in premium premium because we don't have that product and oh by the way our gasoline engines are guzzlers compared to the germans and one of the things to understand about the chinese consumer they'll pay a hundred thousand dollars for a premium product but they also pay a lot of attention to a fuel economy which is kind of <laughs> ironic or it doesn't necessarily follow logically but that's where they come from so they're going to compare the jeep fuel economy with the mercedes bmw and audi and jeep's probably going to lose at least on the bigger engines yeah so as a result they decide hey we're going to go counterintuitive we're coming in we're coming into the market with a compass the smallest and most affordable jeep will win young urbanites in this big cities and then we'll move up from there mm -hmm. yeah it was a nice nice vehicle good good urban crossover yep but in a really competitive market a highly competitive market so on the one hand you have the chinese who are learning fast and putting up better and better product on the other hand the chinese consumer themselves are saying hey this awesome iconic jeep global brand that everyone is so just dying to get their hands on what it's this tiny little runabout <laughs> hang on this is an underwhelming vehicle where's that big giant you know strong suv we're looking for and so they had initial success with the compass you know they were marketing the hell out of it and made it very attractive from a price point of view but there wasn't money in it and as they mm. tried to step up to larger products they ran out of momentum in a hurry it just seems inconceivable. It seemed like such a golden opportunity. And then to have uh, have it not resonate, have the brand lose its lose its cachet again <laughs> in the market. Uh, it really says a lot about how, you know, the right product at the right time uh, does everything for defining a brand in a in a culture. Yeah, right. The Chinese have an expression called Yuan Fen. Uh, it's basically the translation would be destiny. And when I talk to my Chinese friends about Jeep, they kind of shrug their shoulders and say, Yep, Jeep's a victim of that old Yuan Fen. It just wasn't meant to be. For And it's inexplicable. The largest SUV market in the world, consumers willing to pay for top dollar for great brands. They love the Jeep brand itself. And yet when it came to execution, 
Jeep and its partners in China have just never really synced up. So, yeah. so how bad did it get? As recently as June, sales of Jeeps in China. Can you guess the number, Jamie? Oh gosh, uh, uh, was it four digits? It was one digit, <laughs> and the number was one. Oh, one gosh. Jeep sold in June. <laughs> so I think Tavera said, "Fine, it's already dead. Let's just shoot it." Yeah, yeah. I I did wonder if you know Marchion's EV strategy really hurt Jeep. Uh, not even having a hybrid, let alone a plug-in hybrid yet. You know, China went hard on EVs early. And there may be, you know, strategic reasons that aren't just about the environment, but that was the policy. And and they really didn't, Fiat Chrysler didn't have enough to offer, especially in something the size of a Jeep. That's right. In China, you even if you don't deliver on a vehicle, you want to go along with the story and say, yes, China, we understand you want to be the leader globally in electrics. We're doing our very best to bring electric powered Jeeps to market. It'll take a little bit of time, but we're totally in with you. And in contrast, Mark Young might come out and said, you know, we're, I don't actually believe in electrics. And the Chinese partners would have <laughs> it said, don't make sense that does not resonate well here in, in the People's <laughs> Republic. So here we are. So let me ask you about the other CEO then, uh, back to uh, Carlos Tavares, because he, you know, he's had, a, seems like a really unusual track record in China, you know, managing to get Dongfeng out of uh, PSA in part so he could do the deal to create Stellantis, uh, now, you know, breaking it off when most CEOs would be very afraid to walk away from the world's largest auto market. Just one quarter of the vehicles sold on planet Earth are in China. And to say, you know, I'm, I'm just going to import what the market truly demands and will pay me for, handsomely for. How is he seen in China? How does the China auto industry or the government, how do, how do people see Carlos Tavares? Tough, hard-nosed, smart, and they quietly respect him. And hmm. he, this is an important point, Jamie. There's a lot of romantic notions about what China is and what China promises for executives from around the world. And as you said, very few executives want to say, oh, we don't need to be in China or we, we don't need to enter China on Chinese terms. Tavares comes hmm. along and says, let's just be logical and straightforward about this. What's the demand for our products? Where can we make a buck? That's what we're going to do and nothing else. Don't try to scare me with, if I don't stay in the market, there'll be penalties later. I've already suffered enough from that, that sort of <laughs> narrative. I'm just going to go my own way and let things land where they will. Did he yeah. misstep in saying he wanted to, wanted to ex take control and have the majority stake uh, in the JV? Or was that sort of the last, like, if this was ever going to work, I need to be in control or, or forget it? You know, several automakers, BMW is already there. Tesla owns 100%. BMW is yeah. at 75%. So China did start to allow it this year, 2022. So on paper, from a regulatory point of view, no problem. It's all about the how. How did he approach his partners? He probably said, it's time for us to take charge of this operation and make it profitable. Because <laughs> this 50-50 arrangement just hasn't worked. He very likely rubbed his partners wrong. There was acrimony, there was misgivings. And when he says, I want to lift my share to 75%, they said, oh, not so fast. We're going to think about that. And he says, how long? How long are you going to think about it? Well, we'll let you know later. That kind of thing. Yeah. No. And he says, forget it. Not going anywhere. Let's get out. Yep.
Michael Dunn, CEO of Zozo Go, thank you so much for joining me on Daily Drive. Always enjoyable to talk with you, Jamie. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. You can get the latest news on global business deals, earnings results, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about what dealership F&I offices need to know about lending to EV buyers. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.